Jeremiah 31. Let's turn there, if you would, for a moment. This shows what is going to happen in the near future. And I think a lot of us may not realize this. I hope all of you are going to be familiar with these passages in the Bible, such as Jeremiah 31. is talking about the regathering of our people, the regathering of the British and American people. In fact, all the peoples of the world will be brought back to their homelands by Jesus Christ. He says in verse 7, Thus says the Eternal, Sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the nations, chief of the nations, proclaim, give praise and say, O Eternal, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, because we have been taking slaves up in Germany and many of the nations of Europe at that time. That will be our primary place of slavery, north of Jerusalem, and gathered them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the lime, blame, woman with child, one who labors, a great throng. Frankly, hundreds of thousands and millions of people will come streaming back to Israel. They will come with weeping and supplications. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. Skipping on to verse 12, just to save time. Therefore, they shall come and sing. They're finally going to absolutely rejoice when they realize what's happening. They will have been in prison. They will have been in concentration camps. They will be starting to really shake in their boots, literally shake, and maybe get ready to vomit when they hear the boots of one of the guards coming toward their cell. And God describes that, all the beatings they will have gone through and the things that happen if you read the stories of German concentration camps. Then their whole life will be restored. They'll be so grateful they can hardly stand it. They will sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and new wine and oil for the young of the flock and herd. Yes, there will. They won't all be vegetarians, by the way. They'll be eating meat and beef and so on, too, in God's kingdom. Their soul will be like a watered garden and they shall sorrow no more at all. A whole new world is coming, and you and I can be part of it, and you and I be preparing for it if we catch the vision. And I hope many of you young people here and in the churches around the world will begin to catch that vision. We are pioneers. We're helping prepare the way for a whole new world. And we're helping to prepare the way by keeping the festivals of God, not the festivals of this world, not Satan's feast, but God's feast, which picture God's plan. Then the virgin, the young women, will rejoice in the dance. And the young men and old together, I will turn their mourning into joy. Every scripture in the New Testament, I mean the Old Testament, that describes in detail the coming tomorrow's world indicates that. There will be rejoicing, there will be dancing, there will be banqueting, there will be singing. It's going to be a very joyous time. And we need to look forward to that time, which is very, very real. Then let's turn now to Zechariah, if you would, in your New Testament, in your Old Testament. <clears throat> Zechariah chapter 14. And I would tell you new people in the church, and a lot of you young people who may not fully realize this, this is one of the most avoided scriptures in the whole Bible by the Catholic and Protestant ministry. They don't understand it. So they virtually never talk about it. And those who partially understand it try to avoid it because it shows they're wrong. It clearly shows they are wrong. 
That's why they don't read it. Let's read the background of it here first. Verse 1, Zechariah 14, verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord. That's an expression used over 30 times in the Bible, indicating God's intervention in human affairs at the time of the end. Your soul shall be, your spoil shall be divided in your midst. I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city will be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of this city shall go into captivity. How could he say that? Well, that didn't used to be the case. For many years, it was all Jewish. Then later, it was nearly all Muslim. But now, in the last number of years, the Jews have been brought back. Some of them, not most of them, but some have gone back. And so the city is about half and half. The city is already divided. The stage is already set in many places for God's final judgments to come. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off. Then the Lord shall go forth and fight against those nations. Here's Christ's second coming as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. That's not a huge mountain like we see just outside Pasadena. Mount Wilson over 6,000 feet or about 6,000 feet, other big mountains. But it's a big hill, a great big hill just east of Jerusalem. Christ is going to come back. I've stood on that mountain. Many of you have too, the Mount of Olives. His feet will stand there in that day. It says in verse 9, the Lord shall be king over all the earth. He's not going to be up in heaven. He will be here on this earth, ruling this world with a rod of iron. As I've said before, I used to wonder, why is he going to have to rule it with a rod of iron? But when you see these Adolf Hitler's and Benito Mussolini's and Mao Zedong's and these modern dictators like Mubarak and many of the others we've been reading about recently in the Middle East and elsewhere, you realize that these strong-willed, powerful, dictatorial-type men, dictators and terrible tyrants, will really listen to only one thing. We may send some young woman ambassador over there to talk to them, which we often do, which is a terrible mistake because they don't respect women anyway. What are they going to listen to? Are they going to listen to former Senator Kerry, our Secretary of State? Is he going to solve the problem? No, he's not either. They will listen to one thing, as I've said. Get it. The one thing they'll pay attention to is overwhelming force, overwhelming power. And Christ is going to come back with that kind of power. A lot of you young people didn't grow up in the Protestant church like I did for 19 years. But the Protestants talk about little Lord Jesus away in a manger, silent night, holy night, little sweet things all the time. They don't understand that David was a man of God's, after God's own heart. And he's going to be the king of all Israel under Christ reason my mind goes to that, I'm just reading about King David again, going back through First and Second Samuel. He went out to war, and he would destroy the enemy and bring them down. When God fights, he fights to win. He doesn't mess around. He knows what human nature is like. Then when people are willing to repent, when then people are willing to live right, he'll forgive them. He'll forgive them. He'll bring them back. He'll work with them. But he's going to bring them down with such power they are going to have to listen to him at some point. And they're not doing that now at all. So he's going to come back with overwhelming force and rule the entire earth. And in verse 16, it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations who came against Jerusalem, who's that? That's most of the nations of the earth. <coughs> They shall go up from year to year to worship the king, 
the Lord of hosts, and to do what? To keep the Feast of Tabernacles, this magnificent convention we call it today, that's going to be held at Jerusalem with representatives, at least, of all nations all over the earth streaming up to Jerusalem. They talk about going up to Jerusalem in the book of Acts because it is up on a hill. It's higher than most of the rest of Israel. So you go up to Jerusalem. They're going to go there and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to worship the king, on them there shall be no rain. They said, we're not going to do what you say. We're not going to keep this Jewish festival. The world tries to call God's feasts and God's Sabbaths and God's ways Jewish. They're not. They're from the eternal God who gave them for all eternity, for all human life at least. They last. They're among God's statutes that mankind is to keep forever. But I can picture the Egyptians saying, oh, we're not going to keep this Jewish thing. And God predicts that in advance. He says, whichever, and he says, in the family of Egypt, if the family of Egypt will not come up, he, he, he figured that out, they'd rebel and enter in. They shall have no rain. Then he says, they shall receive the plague. First, they have no rain. Then they're going to have boils all over their body or running sores or other things that are going to literally shake them up. And bring them to a depth of repentance that they have never, never experienced. They will have the plague with which the eternal strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. They're not going to come up and watch the Jews keep it. It says they themselves will come up and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Young people around the world, it's not talking just about the Jews. It says every nation, all nations, we are pioneers you and I and all of us in this work are setting the pace for the entire rest of the world. Billions and billions of people will begin to do within a few years what we're doing now. We are able to understand ahead of time because God has called us out of this very mixed up and confused world to do what he wants us to do and to understand his plan and to understand his will. And let me say this as I've often done, but then if you haven't heard it, Every nation and every people on earth, every religion which does not keep these holy days does not understand God. They do not know God, they don't know the true Christ, and they do not know God's plan. This is a very basic part of being a Christian, is to keep these festivals that God Almighty commands. So it says they will have the plague. This shall be the punishment of Egypt, get it, and the punishment of all, he says, of all the nations, all the nations of the earth that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So everyone's going to be doing it. <laughs> We're just doing it a little bit ahead of time. Don't be afraid to do what God says. Have the faith and the courage to obey the Creator of heaven and earth. He will bless you for that. He'll guide your life and He will give you understanding beyond what other people have. So we do want to understand that. I think most of you know that God's festivals are numbered seven. There's seven of them. Nearly everything in God's plan is seven. There's the 7,000-year period. There's the seven-day week. And the seventh day is the Sabbath. And there, of course, is the seven festivals of God, the seven last plagues, the seven spirits of God. That is the perfect or complete number, seven. So there's seven festivals of God, and God tells us to keep all of these. 
And I'll just review them for all of you. Remember, the first one is called the Passover. And that pictures the very first part of God's plan. In God's plan, the first thing we do is repent and be baptized. Peter told the Christians on the day of, first day of Pentecost in the New Testament in Acts 2, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You don't earn it, but there are conditions. It's a very good way Mr. Armstrong used to put it. You don't earn it, but you've got to repent. There are conditions. You're baptized as a symbol of your willingness to say, I will do what God says. I will give my life to God. I surrender. I will quit trying to reason around God's law and God's way. So you repent and are baptized, and then you're promised the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 38. So that's God's plan. First of all, you accept Christ's sacrifice. Then you're forgiven. You have God's Spirit. And then the next thing you do is pictured by the next festival of God called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Leaven is often yeast or other things that cause bread to rise. It's a type of us puffing up, being puffed up, having our own ideas, our own self-will. And so for seven days, again at number seven, we put sin out of our homes to symbolize growing in grace and in knowledge and putting sin out of our lives. Right after baptism, we're to put sin out of our lives and we are to begin to grow in grace and in knowledge under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what unleavened bread pictures in the end, getting rid of sin, overcoming sin, overcoming your human nature. Then the next thing in God's plan is called the Feast of First Fruits in several, several places of the Bible, because we today are called out of this world ahead of time. There was an early harvest in Palestine called the First Fruits Harvest, then the latter harvest, of course, the great harvest, was what is replaced by or pictured by the Feast of, of, of Tabernacles, the Feast of Ingathering, it is all called. But we are the first fruits, and the New Testament calls that Pentecost, because the way they figured it was to count 50. All the other holy days of God were to be on the 14th day of God's first month, or unleavened bread start on the 15th. And the Passover start on the 15th, of course, trumpets in the seventh month on the first day. But the only feast you count is Pentecost, which literally means 50th or can be translated count 50. You count 50, and then you come to the right day to keep that. And that was the beginning of the early spring harvest, the feast of first fruits, indicating that God is not trying to save the world now. He's not. If God were trying to save the world, his name is El Shaddai, God Almighty. God would save the world. Nothing would stop him from saving the world if that's what he was trying to do. He's not trying to save the world now. Billy Graham and all these other people around in the Protestant world, they think that God is like a lonesome hound dog. He's out sniffing around and saying, will you repent? Give your heart to the Lord. Accept Jesus. Do so. he, He's not trying to get them all saved. These Protestant ministers don't understand that. God is not trying to save the world now. He's letting the world go its own way for 6,000 years. Then he's going to intervene. And he's going to help people wake up. But he's going to let them burn the lessons of human experience in their minds. So then they cannot say, well, if we had done it this other way, we'd have been just as happy. 
when they're finally brought down, way down through their own ways, the wars, the troubles, the drought, the famine, the disease epidemics, and everything else that God will also add, some of those things he will help bring about as well. They're going to be truly humble and willing to listen. Then they will realize they've got to do it God's way. So he's only calling a few now. That's why there's so few of us. This place ought to be full. And there ought to be a hundred or a thousand different churches all over this city where everybody would be keeping God's Sabbath. They will. They will in a few years. We are pioneers. We're just a few that are starting out. And it's good for us to constantly picture that fact in our mind. We are the first fruits. We're pictured here by the day of Pentecost or the Feast of First Fruits. Then the, that's the next thing in God's plan to show people that call of first fruits. Then the next thing in God's plan is Christ's second coming. When does Christ come? He comes at the seventh trump, the last trumpet. And trumpets in the New Testament, I mean in the Old Testament, I keep saying the New Testament, the Old Testament were used as an alarm, a warning, often as an alarm of war. They'd blow the trumpet to warn the people of the attack or getting the troops ready to fight. That's the way trumpets were often used. Christ comes at the last trumpet. He's going to come back as King of kings and Lord of lords. So that's the next thing in God's plan. What's the next thing right after that? After uh, the, the Feast of Trumpets, then you have the Day of Atonement or at one man. Because right after Christ comes, we find a time when Satan is going to be absolutely bound Who's causing the problems of this world primarily? It's not just human nature. It's human nature under the powerful influence of Satan the devil. And when Satan is put away, finally then the whole world will rejoice, frankly, and the whole world will be ready to listen. So when that happens, it's going to be wonderful. It pictures the time when Satan will be absolutely put away from the world and there will be peace and joy and at oneness with God for the first time in human history. Then what happens? Then you have the next festival called the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Ingathering. That is called two or three times as well. The great fall harvest. Satan is gone. People are not blinded. Then people can understand. And as the truth is taught all over the world by all the ministers will be true ministers and the false ministers will be put away. Then people can understand, and they will understand, and they will learn God's way and really rejoice, and they will be prospered. God will send the rain in due season. He will bless them, protect them, encourage them, and so on, and heal them. People all over will be healed physically of their infirmities, and so on. It will be a wonderful time, the feast of ingathering, when God gathers in the big fall harvest and everyone has a chance. Then what's left out, all you older brethren know, and some of you newer brethren have heard about it, or young people, but picture the one thing that's really a magnificent thing in God's plan when you really understand it. One of the most magnificent things in all human history. God is not a respecter of persons. God is fair. God is always fair. He will not leave anyone out. So all of your relatives, old Uncle Joe, who was a drunkard, Uncle Henry, who got into trouble with the law, your cousins who got into drugs or did wrong or had all ways of, you know, broken marriages and homes and they didn't go to church and all messed up. All the people that you see the movie, The Titanic, all those people that went down in the depths of the sea and the earlier one, the Lusitania, who drowned. 
All the people who died in Hitler's concentration camps in Dachau and all these other places. What's going to happen to those people? Are they gone forever? They just died right then. They never had a chance, so far as we know of, when all the little babies that die right away after they're born or get a childhood disease or whatever. God will never forget those people. That is the next magnificent thing in God's plan. It's called the great white throne judgment, the last great day. And on that last great day, God will resurrect those who've never been given an opportunity, not to spirit life, but back to physical life and give them an opportunity to understand this book, this book. And they will grasp the truth, as was explained in the sermonette, the truth that is in this book for the first time and really get it and appreciate it. And God will give them not a second chance, brethren. Often your Protestant friends will try to argue, oh, God will not give anyone a second chance. He's not giving them a second chance. Most of those people never really understood. They really didn't get it. God was not calling them yet. And remember this scripture when we're thinking of that particular thing. And I don't have that in my notes, but I wanted to give it to you. And most of you older brethren again know this back in John 6. John 6 and beginning in verse 65. He said, therefore, I have said to you, Jesus said, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. No one can come not their fault they can't come unless God calls them. And back in verse 44, John 6, verse 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him or calls him. They just can't come. It's not their fault. We are not better than they are. We are more blessed, but we are not better. Some of them will be better Christians than I am or you are when they're given that full chance, probably. Men and women of great capacity. But they're not called now. So only people who are drawn by God, and I will raise him up at the last day, Jesus said. So God is not calling everyone now. That's not his purpose. But he is calling us. And we better really appreciate and appreciate God's whole plan revealed in these holy days. And brethren, we in God's church... I know some of you may fall away. So many I've taught in the past. So many Mr. Herbert Armstrong taught in the past. And Dr. Hay and all the older ministers have fallen away. Mr. Armstrong used to look at us there in the auditorium. Mr. Davis and Mr. Partin will remember. He said, brethren, you don't get it. I don't think most of you get it. He told us that again and again. And it turned out he was right. For a while he said, I think only half of you are really converted. And then two or three times near the end, he says, I think only maybe one-tenth, a tithe of your brethren are really converted. And that was much closer to the truth. So out of 150,000 people at the peak, approximately, maybe 15,000 hung on to most of the truth, at least, and are still basically obeying God. We don't know. I'm not trying to be exact. But he sensed what was there. I personally feel, and I know Mr. Ames does and many of our leaders that a greater percentage of you are converted, far more than a tithe. Perhaps it's two-thirds or three-fourths or four-fifths. I hope it's 90%. I can't read your hearts. I just know history. I just know history. I came to Ambassador College 64 years ago, and about six weeks from now would be 64 years I've been in and around God's church and saw what happened to people, 
Have they learned a little bit, then they fall away. Students would come in, learn something, fall away. Some would graduate, then fall away. Some become in the ministry. Some would become evangelists and then fall away. And that kept happening right up until Mr. Armstrong's death and after his death. So examine yourselves. God tells us that. Don't do just at Passover time all the time. Do you really feel a sense of surrender to live by every word of God? Will you try to let Christ live his life in you no matter what? When all your friends around you, when many of the Protestant leaders, even famous men and women among the Protestants and Catholics, begin to go back to the Catholic Church because that's the convenient thing, there's going to be tremendous pressure on them to do that. Tremendous pressure. Most of them will give in to that pressure and they'll join the club. They'll go along with the world around them. Some few of us are called to really understand God's way. God help us to appreciate that, to act on that, to hang on that, to endure. He that endures unto the end shall be saved, Jesus said, Matthew 24:13. Not he who starts out, he who endures to the end. Are you going to do that? Do you have the understanding, do you have the faith and the courage to endure to the end, to prove these things, and to no one know that you know, and then hang on to it and never, never, ever quit? Be sure that you have that understanding and that you do, because you'll be blessed throughout all eternity for that, to be willing to step out and hang on. Christ was not resurrected on Sunday morning. He was not resurrected on any morning. Christ said the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the fish. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great well, he would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Excuse me, straighten myself out. Count three days and three nights. Never everyone knows. You can read it clearly. Christ was crucified and put in the, in the tomb shortly before sunset as the Sabbath began. The world does not realize that Sabbath was not a weekly Sabbath. One of the scriptures in Mark or whatever shows that Sabbath was a high day. It was a holy day. The first of that particular day of unleavened bread was a high day. So Christ was put in the tomb just before sunset, maybe just at sunset. So if he was in the tomb three days and three nights, when did he resurrect? Not in the morning, not in any morning. Certainly not Easter morning. He was resurrected that Saturday evening just at sunset probably. He was resting in the earth on that day of rest. He'd been put in the tomb as we know Wednesday evening. And he was there all day Thursday, all day Friday, all day Saturday. And Saturday evening just before or at sunset he was resurrected after three days and three nights. Matthew 12. I should have given you the reference. Look it up. Read it right in your notes. Matthew 12, verse 40. Christ was to be in the earth. The special sign he gave himself that he was the Messiah. That he would be three days and three nights in the, in the heart of the earth, in his grave. So that's what he was. And remember again, Galatians 2.20. My favorite scripture, but I'll use it again here. The Apostle Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, not the old Paul, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live with the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ lives in me, Paul said. 
So many scriptures in the New Testament show that Christ is to live in you. And in Hebrews chapter 13, look it up if you're not familiar. Hebrews 13 verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. He will keep the same holy days in you if you're a Christian as he kept and his apostles kept when he was here on the earth. So we do want to understand. Let's begin to see some of the holy days and how Christ describes them. I won't give you all the scriptures. And by the way, I'd like to mention the booklet that some of you are new and may not have read the booklet. We have a booklet, as you know, most of you, absolutely free upon your request, as we say, on the telecast. Absolutely free. No cost, no subscription, no nothing. Just ask for the booklet. Maybe it'll be out on the table, but we probably don't have enough of them. But if you don't have that booklet, get one. Pick it up if we have a lit table. Do we have a lit table out there, Mr. League? I should add you have about 50 of those booklets out there, this particular one. But it was called The Holy Days. The Holy Days, God's Master Plan. Some of you don't have that booklet, get it. That's a very thorough booklet, about 44 pages. It covers all the scriptures and basic things that are in there. And take time to read and study it. Study your Bible. It's in the Bible. It's what the Bible says is very plain. We have all kinds of references in the booklets to historical proofs, all kinds of things as well as the scriptures. But notice here now, brethren, in Luke chapter 22, turn with me at this point to Luke, the gospel of Luke chapter 22. And here in verse 7 is talking about Christ's example and what he did. Verse 7, then the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed, and he sent Peter and John, saying, go and prepare the Passover that we may eat. Now, if you read the whole thing, I can't read every verse. You read it. Write your notes. Look it up. They were eating a lamb. They were observing the Old Testament Jewish Passover. And then at the end of that normal Passover, the Jews kept having a roast lamb with bitter herbs. He introduced the new symbols, the new symbols of the bread and the wine. And so they did do that, says in verse 13. So they went and found it, as he had said, and they prepared the Passover. They cooked the lamb. They got the bitter herbs. They got everything ready. And when the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said to them, with fervent desire, have I desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Why would he say that? Why would Jesus say that? It wasn't just some sentimental idea. He was very God. He'd existed with God from eternity. And he emptied himself and came in this human flesh. And he'd let men kick him and curse him and spit in his face at the end of his life. He'd help them. He'd serve them. He'd healed them. But he knew what was in their heart. He knew they weren't converted. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know what they do. They, don't, they know not what they do when they were doing that. But he thought, I'm just to go through this very pre-enactment, as the whole nation of Israel did, you know, 3,000 years ahead or whatever it was, 1,500 years ahead of the Christ sacrifice. They enacted it by having a roast lamb and killing that lamb, and that lamb's blood was shed, and they pre-enacted what was later going to be done to their Savior. The blood was shed. So he was carrying that out, and I think he felt deeply, this is what I'm going to do. In a few hours, and he wanted to keep that Passover with them and have his disciples focus on that. 
For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks. Probably what they call in the Catholic theology, the Holy Grail, apparently a pitcher of wine, a larger vessel of wine, and said, divide it among yourselves. And then he said, in verse 19, he took bread. That's the first thing they actually eat. Christ was beaten and lashed with whips, scourged in the early morning hours of that Passover day, whipped and his flesh was torn, that by his stripes we were healed. So the bread comes first because Christ was sacrificed first. So then he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do. You're commanded by Jesus Christ. This do. And remember to me, take that broken bread as a symbol of Christ's broken body. Then next, he took the cup, and after supper, of course, then he had had them, no doubt, pass it around and, and put from out of the Holy Grail or some larger vessel into their individual cups, this wine. Then they drank this. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So then they were to take that cup of red wine, symbolizing his red blood, that his blood was going to be pouring out. So that is, of course, picturing what Christ did. The Passover pictures the first thing in God's plan, the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ. And Christ did it, setting us an example. You turn to 1 Corinthians now. Let's turn there. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in your New Testament. And here, it tells you more specifically the exact time, by the way, which people don't often figure out. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. The Apostle Paul said, For I received from the Lord, he was taught directly by Jesus Christ, that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. So first came the bread. He took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This represents my body. It wasn't some transubstantiation. Here he was, a young 33-year-old Jew. He didn't say, I'm going to dive over into this bread, and that bread really is me. No, it was a representative, obviously, a representation. So he said, this eat. And so he told them to eat that as a rep as a, uh, in remembrance of him. And uh, then he said, in the same manner, verse 25, he took the cup, the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant. So that cup represented each covenant, as you know, reading the book of Hebrews, is ratified by blood. So Christ's blood ratified the New Testament because the very Creator died for His creation. And that blood of His ratified and brought into being the New Covenant. The New Covenant in my blood. This do take that cup every year when Christ did, not whenever you feel like it. Some Protestants take it every month. Some take it quarterly, as I think the Methodists do, four times a year. The, the Catholics get up every morning and take what they call Mass. They try to take something like that every morning. It doesn't say do that. Do it when Christ tells you to. Once a year on the Passover, that's what you're to do. And that's what God commands. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he come. You do it on the anniversary of Christ's death. And that's when the Passover is commanded to be kept. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
where you do it carelessly, just like a ritual that has no meaning, or you do it sarcastically, or whatever, he will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. Think about what you're doing. Brethren, think about what you're doing when you're coming up to the Feast of Tabernacles. Think about the fact you're a pioneer. You're pre-enacting what the whole world's going to be doing in a few years. And you want to really drink into those sermons. You want to take notes. You want to go over those notes. You want to talk about the sermons. You want to have the mind of God because in a few years, probably fewer than some of us realize, we may be teaching the whole world under the direction of Jesus Christ, the way of God. And we've got to be sure we understand this book and make this book part of our very being. And so we want to really understand what we're doing in keeping the Passover and keeping the Feast of Tabernacles and all of God's festivals. So let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that wine, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. He does not have a proper understanding of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So we are to keep the Passover. And when are we to keep it? I didn't cover that part carefully here. Verse 23. Paul says, God's apostle, I received from the Lord, the Lord Christ, that which I also delivered to you. What? That the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. A lot of our separated brethren in various little groups expire up here. And F comes up again every few years. People want to argue about the calendar or they want to argue about the holy names or think we have to learn Hebrew or something like that. They'll come up every few years. We have to explain it all over again. We understand those things. We've been over it before. Or some of them think we're supposed to keep Passover when the Jews keep it. No, we do not keep it when they keep it. We keep it when God said to keep it. The Jews have been blinded. They do not understand Christ, and they do not accept Christ. And God partly blinded them by causing their leaders to actually change the time to keep the Passover. Because the correct time to keep the Passover is the beginning, not the end, but the beginning on, at sunset, at dusk, on the 14th day, the beginning of the 14th day of God's first month. And that, of course, is, is not the day of, of uh, the unleavened bread, that the Lord Jesus on the same night, it happens at night, not in the morning, in which he was betrayed, took bread. So Christ was betrayed that the beginning of the 14th, as you know, he was betrayed. Judas betrayed him that night. He came with lanterns and soldiers and so on. Then all night long they tormented Christ. If you go back and read the last several chapters of the book of John and so on, you'll see that. Then the next morning they took him to Pilate, which was on the 15th, and then finally he was crucified, and they hurried to break the bones of those who were being crucified with him so they wouldn't be hanging on the cross on the Passover. So that was the Jewish Passover that was about to come, because the Jews were keeping the next day as the Passover. Christ's Passover was the previous night. That tells us when to keep the Passover, when Christ kept it, and when Paul kept it, and when Paul told us how to keep it. Now let's turn back to, if you would, to First uh, Corinthians 5. Let's go to unleavened bread now. First Corinthians chapter 5 at this point. And notice what it says here. <clears throat> Paul is talking about a, 
matter, a horrible thing, an incest, a man who is to have his father's wife, as it says in verse 1. He says, I'm present in spirit. Put this man out, and the power of Christ delivers such a one to Satan. Verse 5, for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So then he shows him to put out this man, this wicked man. Your glory is not good. Verse 6, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Leaven tends to spread through the whole dough, just like sin tends to spread. If you leave a little bit, it spreads. If you leave a sinner, we've had some here arguing, fussing, saying, well, they're not fair, and they'll go on and on and blot their mouth off over it. You have to get rid of that. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, and you're not to let that spread. Therefore, God commands, verse 7, purge out the old leaven. And, of course, he's talking not just about the man and the sinner. He also is talking about the Passover and then the days of unleavened bread. That you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. How were they unleavened? When you read chapter 11, which I've shown you, they had just kept the Passover. Some of them had gotten drunk at the Passover. They said, oh, a feast. We'll keep a feast like they used to in their pagan religion. They still didn't know fully how to keep it. These Corinthians were very emotional, very unbalanced, very zealous, but very unbalanced in many ways. So they were unleavened physically when he wrote this to them during the days of unleavened bread. This dates when the letter was probably written in the spring and the Passover season, unleavened bread, probably 55 A.D. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Christ is the one who is our Passover lamb. Therefore, let us keep the feast. What feast? Well, the feast that comes right after the Passover. Let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Here, brethren, is a New Testament command. Not in the Old Testament. A New Testament command. Therefore, let us keep the feast. And he's definitely talking, as you see in context, about the feast of unleavened bread. And that's what they were to do, to keep the feast of unleavened bread. Now let's turn back to Acts chapter 20, if you would. Acts chapter 20, and notice what God says here. He's inspiring the beloved physician Luke to write this, who was accompanying Paul. Luke wrote in Acts chapter 20, verse 6, We, Paul and his company, including Luke, we sailed away from Philippi. When? Was Philippi a, a, a Jewish city? No, it was a Gentile city. We sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. Obviously, the Christians had been keeping the days of unleavened bread. That's why he would talk about it. It had not been nailed to the cross. This was about 20 years after Christ's death. It was still there. The Christians were still keeping it. Paul said was going to keep the days of unleavened bread. And so then they sailed away after that time. And in five days we came to Troas. And then the next festival of God, of course, is Pentecost. You come to unleavened bread. And then the next thing happening is the Feast of First Roots or Pentecost. And this very chapter has something about that. Paul continues to travel here. And it says in verse 16, Acts 20, verse 16, For Paul had decided to sail by Ephesus, Luke wrote, so that he would not have to spend the time in Asia. He's not talking about China and India, but that we would call it Asia Minor, that area over there we call Turkey today. He would not spend the time in Asia Minor, 
for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Why was he going to hurry to be at Jerusalem? Well, because he was still keeping the Pentecost. He wanted to be there and observe that festival with them. So the day of Pentecost was still being kept by the Apostle Paul and certainly the Gentile churches. Now we turn back to Acts 2, and we read here obviously more about Pentecost because this is, of course, when the New Testament church actually started. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they, that's all the apostles of Christ, they were all with one accord. Some of them weren't keeping Christmas and Easter. They weren't keeping all kinds of other things. They were counting Pentecost together, count 50, and they were together with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And brethren, some of you newer brethren and some of the young people, you've heard of the Pentecostals? Most of you had. I didn't used to understand what that meant because they think they're like the day of Pentecost because they try to hoop and holler. They glory, 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 and Christ is coming, and glory, glory, glory. Yes, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. They get to going with all kinds of noise. They think that's what happened on this day. <clears throat> that is not what happened on this day. Notice. There came from heaven. The sound didn't come out of their mouths. It came from heaven, from God, as a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house. And there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire. God supernaturally sent flames down from the ceiling. And it sat on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not a spirit of confusion as it tells you back in 1 Corinthians 14, where people don't lose control and hoop and holler and, and fall on the floor, wallowing and mouthing and so on, as often happens in these Pentecostal meetings. So please understand, these people were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were given utterance from the Spirit. And when multitude came together of different languages, verse 6, they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. It was a supernatural thing. They were given the supernatural capacity to speak as we might speak today. Some of us in Chinese or Russian or Japanese or some foreign language we'd never studied. It wasn't some gibberish. They did have the power of the God Spirit to speak in different languages. So some of them even then confused them in verse 13. Mocking said, they're full of new wine. But Peter stood up, verse 14, saying, men and brethren... Be this, let this be known to you, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. And they started counting by Roman time, six o'clock in the morning, so it would have been nine in the morning. He said, only nine in the morning. That's, they went and been out drinking somewhere. It's only nine in the morning. Only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So what happened on that original day of Pentecost, as the New Testament church started out, was a beginning of what, as you brethren who live on and walk with God, I may not be here to see it happen. I hope I will. Someday near the end, we're going to have a great outpouring of God's spirit more than happened there. And God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. And he says at that time, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men will give visions, 
and on my servants and maidservants. I will pour out my spirit. They shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs of the earth beneath, blood, fire, vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and notable day of the Lord. Just before Christ comes back, there will be this kind of power poured out on God's people. And that is what happened on that day of Pentecost. 31 A.D. was sort of a prelude to that, showing the power of God to help inspire the church. As the church of Israel started out with great power, God shook that mountain of Sinai, and great fire and lightning and thunder was there, and God spoke to them, shaking the whole landscape, the voice that came across like rolling thunder, and the people were scared to death. They said, Moses, you speak to us. We're afraid of God. He may kill us. So God began to speak through Moses, not directly through through the people. But he showed that power. They had to have that kind of power on that original day of Pentecost to realize that this is what God wants. Those things we learned in the past in the Old Testament, we know the New Testament servants said they're true, the basic way of God. But all of it was, of course, magnified by God. You don't have to literally keep the, the rituals and the washings. You keep the Ten Commandments and the statutes. But this is the new covenant. You accept Jesus Christ and are filled with and led by His Holy Spirit to keep the law, not just in the letter, but you keep it in the Spirit. And so they had to have that power to show that, yes, there is the very power of God to ratify and to show that this was God who is starting out a new covenant, a new way of coming to God through Jesus Christ. So that was the day of Pentecost, the day of first fruits, and of course God began to call people out at that time in the New Testament. Now let's go back to Leviticus 23, brethren, which I've been referring to. If you would, turn back to Leviticus chapter 23. Why do we so often turn here? Because it is the only place in the Bible where he lists all seven of God's holy days in order in one place. He said, well, Mr. Meredith, why didn't God have it one, two, three, A, B, C in the New Testament, the Old Testament, everywhere else? Because God doesn't do that. He says back in Isaiah 28, he gives his truth a little here, a little there. So men go forward, fall backward and be broken, snared and taken. God has the Bible, as Mr. Armstrong said, like a jigsaw puzzle. He puts part of the truth here and there, and you have to put it together in the right way with the guidance of God's Spirit. The principles are there. God reveals it clearly, but this is where it's all listed in one place. So here we find the eternal spoke, verse 1, and who is that Lord spoke? Most of you brethren know that Lord was the one who became Jesus Christ. He was the Word, the Logos, the spokesman of the Old Testament. Christ spoke these words. And he says, these are the feasts of the eternal of Christ, which you shall claim, uh, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. Now, convocation is a commanded assembly. It's not saying we're having a tea party and you're welcome to come if you can. God says you will come and you must come unless you're truly sick or something bad and can't come. You're told to come, commanded to come. What's the first feast of God? Six days shall your work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. In it you shall do no work. It is the Sabbath of the Lord. Not the Jewish Sabbath, but God's Sabbath. 
So the first of God's feasts is the weekly Sabbath, picturing that God is the creator. He rested on that day, picturing the 7,000-year plan of God. And all those things are involved in the weekly Sabbath. Then he said, verse uh, 4, These are the feasts of the eternal holy convocations. We're not just to come if we feel like it. We're commanded to come. Holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their appointed times, or as the Jewish has it, in their seasons. They're based on the harvest seasons of Israel. And they're partly picturing a spiritual harvest. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight, you see, at the very beginning of the first of the 14th day is the Lord's Passover. Notice what it says. It doesn't say the Jews' Passover. It says the Eternal's Passover, God's Passover, Christ's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So there you are. First it starts out with Christ's sacrifice, then the days of unleavened bread. And unleavened bread must be eaten seven days. And on the first day you have a holy convocation, which we do. And on the seventh day a holy convocation. And you're to learn the lesson of putting out sin from your life during that time. Then he says later, uh, verse 9, the Lord spoke to Moses. Verse 10, speak to Israel. When you come out of the land I've given you and reap its harvest, then you'll bring a sheaf of the first fruits. So Pentecost is often called the harvest of first fruits to the Lord. And you bring a, the first fruits to the harvest to, to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the eternal to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath. So it's not to be waved on the Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread. It's to be waved on the day after the Sabbath. The priest shall wave it. So it's showing that he will put his blessing on that feast. Now one reason you have the feast of first fruits and the wave sheep and the Holy Spirit is talked about. Because when they did that God's way, they were asking God's blessing on what? They were asking God's blessing on the early Barley harvest, the early harvest of grain in the spring. God's blessing, God's power. And so the day of Pentecost in the New Testament talks about the Holy Spirit coming because you're asking for God's Spirit to be there to give God's power on the spiritual harvest. And we need that God's power to do the work. We need God's harvest, God's blessing, God's Holy Spirit to help us grow individually to be like Christ. So that's what that's all about. And that first of heat sheaf of first fruits was to be waved. Now keep your, and then it shows a little later. I better read this part then. Verse 15, you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. So if you count seven Sabbaths beginning on a Sabbath or the day after the Sabbath, you know, then Sunday's one day one. And Saturday, we know, on the week we have today is day seven. So you go to the seventh Sabbath, and the next day is what? Sunday. Sunday. So Pentecost falls on a Sunday, but they had to count because you don't have it on the 14th day of the first month or the first day of the month as other festivals. You have to count from the day that they offer this sheep to God. And, of course, it's called the first fruits. I want to go back and show you scripture on that term, the first fruits, uh, Exodus 23, if you would turn there, brethren, to Exodus uh, chapter 
23. And, uh, well, here, let's Exodus. I'm going to I'm already have this marked. Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34, uh, 21. Six days shall you work, but the seventh day is your Sabbath. And verse 22, you shall observe the Feast of Weeks. You count seven weeks, then the next day is Pentecost, or first fruits. Feast of Weeks, of the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And then he says in that chapter, verse, and the Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of Tabernacles at the year's end. You see, it was called the Feast of Ingathering. Now, back here in Exodus uh, chapter 23, turn on now back to Exodus 23, where we're starting to turn. I don't think I have that marked in the same way. Exodus 23, and uh, notice what he has here. He says here in verse 14, Three times you'll keep a feast to me, three festival seasons. One was Passover, unleavened bread, then Pentecost in the summer, then the four holy days that come in the seventh month. It's the three times. You shall keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days. And then the Feast of Harvest, notice verse 16, the Feast of Harvest of Firstfruits. So that is Pentecost. It's called the Feast of Harvest of Firstfruits. And then at the end of the year, the Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of Tabernacles, the great ingathering when God sets His hand to save the whole world, which is at the end of the year when you've gathered in the fruits of your harvest from the field. So that is why God calls these things different names. They picture a spiritual harvest. And those names are applicable because of that. So then we have Pentecost picturing the fact that we're the first fruits. We're not the majority of the world. We're not the majority of even Christians. We're called the first fruits. The majority of people who are going to be called will be called when? During the whole thousand years of Christ's reign. And then the billions who never understood and died before then will be brought up in the great white throne judgment. So very few people comparatively of the true saints of God will have come up. But we have the honor, brethren. You say, we have a harder time. Yes, we do. Satan's out roaring around trying to deceive us. And God knows that. So he gives, it seems like, his plan, if I may say that. His plan is to give people a greater reward, those who come first and make it, Abraham came first, and he made it, and Isaac and Jacob, and then Moses and others, and then King David. And those who come later, he's already taken up certain offices. It's not democracy. We're not to argue. I've never lost any sleep, and I hope you never lose any sleep. Well, why can't I be there and do what Abraham did? Well, that's ridiculous. God knows. It's his will. Maybe Abraham would have been a better Christian than any of us are today here anyway. Probably would have. But that, those jobs are taken. He chose those people, and they came first. So we are going to come ahead of all the people during the millennium that are called, if we make it. You've got to fight, and fight for the truth, and fight to overcome your human nature. Fight to overcome the world that's around you that's all deceived. And fight to overcome Satan the devil. He's not been put away yet, as you know. But God will reward you if you fight that fight. You will have a greater opportunity if you make it to have a higher position through all eternity in the family of God, the kingdom of God. So we are pioneers. We are the Navy SEALs. We have to land there first. And that's rough. <laughs> We've got to be the rough 
tough guys before the main army comes in yet. A little bit of an analogy. It's not a perfect analogy. We've got to think about that. We've got to really be tough. We've got to have spiritual strength and cry out to God to get that strength from God. So the Feast of Unleavened or the Feast of Pentecost shows us where the first fruits were called out ahead of time. And then going back to uh, uh, there, let's go back to Leviticus 23 again. We've seen about the day of Pentecost or first fruits. Then he said in verse 24, speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath of rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets. As I've said, trumpets are often used as an alarm of war, a holy convocation not to do any work in that day. It's a holy day. What does that picture? Well, obviously, the rest of the New Testament shows you over and over that trumpets are going to be taking place. If you read the book of Revelation, you have the seven trumpet plagues. And all these things get worse and worse and worse. They picture the wars and disease epidemics and drought and famine and so on right after Christ's coming. And then Christ comes at the last trumpet. They're a time of trouble. They're an alarm of war. So that pictures the second coming of Christ. Turn if you keep your place here if you want to. I'll keep coming back to Leviticus. But in Revelation 11, Revelation chapter 11 and most of you know this, of course, verse 15, it talks about the seventh trump. I can, I don't have enough markers to cover all these scriptures I'm giving today, so I'll have to turn more here today. Revelation 11, it shows the three woes. And finally it comes in verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming. Revelation 11, now verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world, not up in heaven, the government of Germany, the government of Russia, the government of China, the government of Great Britain, the government of the United States, all the governments of this world, it's not some lovey-dovey thing way off somewhere, brethren. You young people have an opportunity more than you realize have part in a literal government on this earth, if you make it, have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He, Christ, shall reign forever and ever. Where? Not up in heaven, but on this earth. And, of course, you read back in Revelation 5, and I'll turn there. Most of you know that. I've read so often, but Revelation 5 is talk about the prayer of the saints, the song of the saints, how Christ is worthy and has redeemed us to God by His blood out of every time tried people and nation. And verse 10, Revelation 5, verse 10, And Christ has made us kings and priests. He has made us. We are already made in God's plan as long as we hang on. He has made us kings and priests to our God, and we, the saints, shall reign on this earth. So Christ comes at the last trumpet, and that is described again and again throughout the Bible. And lots of, of course, uh, know that and have seen those references. Now we go back to Revelation, I mean to Leviticus again, if you would. Leviticus 23. And here we come then to the next big event, the Day of Atonement. On the tenth day of the seventh month shall be the day of that one month, a time when the world will become at one with God. It will be a holy convocation. You'll afflict your souls. Afflicting the word 
using the word afflict your souls all the way through the Old Testament refers to fasting. So you fast on that day. It's an unusual solemn time because it pictures the time when Satan the devil is put away. You read how it really is carried out back in Leviticus chapter 16. And I don't have time to read that today, but it talks about here how the Aaron was to come, verse 4, Leviticus 16, into the holy place with the blood of a young bull, the lamb offering, and he was to take then two kids of goats. And in verse 9, verse 8, one, he was to cast lots for the two goats. One lot was for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat or the adversary. And that scapegoat is a mistranslation. So the one that was to picture the adversary was taken out into an unknown place or like the bottomless pit and let go by a man of God because he came back and had to wash his clothes. He touched the devil symbolically and he was dirty. Satan is to be put away. And the, the whole ritual on this day pictured in chapter 16 of Leviticus pictures Satan being put away right after Christ's coming. He said in verse 29, This shall be a statute forever for you in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all. So that's the day of atonement. Then the next great festival of God is coming up, of course, on the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's the next thing pictured here in Leviticus 23. Verse 34. Speak to the children of Israel. The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles to the Lord on the first days of holy convocation. And then he says, notice verse 36, on the eighth day you have a solemn convocation. And he says in verse uh, uh, 39, also on the fifth day of the seventh month when you get the fruit of your land, you'll keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. And then the eighth day is a solemn Sabbath rest, a separate festival. And you shall take trees, boughs of trees and leafy trees and rejoice. You're to rejoice. It pictures the glorious time of Christ's reign on the earth. You shall keep it a feast of the Lord seven days. It shall be a statute forever. And you'll celebrate your feast in the seventh month. You'll keep it at temporary dwelling places. We're like strangers and pilgrims looking forward to the kingdom of God. And we're to keep that joyous feast as I described at the beginning. All nations will come up and keep it. Every nation on earth. And some of you young people will be there to see that if you're not converted yet or if you're not spirit yet. I'll put it that way. But even those spirit beings will rejoice. We'll just, it'll be fun for me if I'm there. I plan to be there, by the way. And uh, God willing to see the millions of people streaming toward Jerusalem at that time and other millions and billions around the world keeping what we're doing now, the Feast of Tabernacles. So then right after that, as we see here, then that in verse 36, on the eighth day, you'll have a solemn convocation. Why? Because, brethren, God is fair. God is fair. It is not his will that any are left out. And you read back in First Timothy, if you want to turn there in your New Testament here, Turn back to 1st Timothy chapter 2, and I'll turn there with you, try to find it quickly myself. 1st Timothy chapter 2, it says, whoops, I've got Thessalonians here. Paul writes, 
Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's his desire. Why are they not being saved? He's not trying to save them now. He wants them to be saved. He's not trying to save them now. And remember, Jesus Christ said back in Matthew chapter 20, chapter 12, I think it is here. Turn with me to Matthew 20, verse 12, chapter 12. He says in verse 40, the sign that he had, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will rise up. These pagan people in Nineveh. In the judgment. There is a judgment day coming. A judgment doesn't mean just a passing of a sentence. It's a trying and testing time. With this generation and condemnment. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And did a greater of Jonah than here. And the queen of south will come up and condemn it. Because she was willing to listen to God then. And a greater than Solomon is here. So they had... No opportunity. Christ was not trying to call them back there. He's going to call them in a future time called the Great White Throne Judgment. And this church is the only church of God that really understands that. Only those churches that have come down through the work of Herbert W. Armstrong understand that. You turn to chapter 20 now of Revelation. Turn to Revelation, brethren, and verse 20, and I'll have to hurry here and make it brief. But I want to cover this. Revelation chapter 20, right after Christ comes back to earth, it shows I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. He puts the dragon in a bottomless pit and bound him for a thousand years that he should deceive the nations no more. So Satan is bound right after Christ comes. And then he says, about the saints that many have them been beheaded for the witness of Jesus verse 4 the word of God who not worshipped the beast and had not received his mark and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years but notice brethren verse 5 a little insert here when you understand it interpolation but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished who are the rest of the dead Billions of human beings from China, Russia, India, the people who died in the Titanic, the Lusitania who went down, all the wars of human history. Most of those young men had no idea about God. Most of the other people, they did not know. They were not cold. They did not understand until later. Then he goes back, blessed and holy, who has part in the first resurrection. So he's talking about, of course, Christ coming. They shall be priests of God and Christ and reign with him a thousand years. After the thousand years, Satan is let out. And notice how quickly Satan deceives the people. This world is deceived. I don't think most of you even realize how deceived it is. It's amazing. Right after Satan comes out and back after the world's been keeping God's ways for 1,000 years, he quickly turns people aside again. And he can quickly turn us aside if we let down our guard. And we have to really 
study this book and pray, be sensitive to God's will, be aware of Satan and his devices, and walk with God, talk with God, commune with God, and have Christ's Spirit in us to win the spiritual battle, to endure to the end. Then he says, after this final battle, when God lets these people out of the fight once again, when Satan is let out to stir them up, then, verse 11, right at the very end, a great white throne he saw, and him who sat on it was uh, heaven and earth fled away. There was no place for them. And I saw the dead, here are dead people, stand before God. Dead people don't stand unless there's a resurrection. And so they were resurrected from the dead, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Now, one book is the book of life, the other books here is a different Greek word, Biblia, and that is the same word that is used for the Bible. When these people come up in this final judgment for 100 years approximately, they're going to be judged out of what? Not all the bad things they did when they were in the German army or the Russian army or somewhere else. They're judged out of the books, the books of the Bible. They are given understanding of this precious knowledge. God opens their mind at that time, not a second chance, but a first chance. And when you understand it, that is perhaps the most magnificent part of God's plan. That my old relatives that were never converted, most of your relatives of the past that were never converted, these people who died mysterious deaths, little babies that died in the hospital, never knowing anything, they're not gone. They're not gone. They will live again. They will be given a genuine opportunity. So when you understand the seven holy days of God, it pictures the whole panorama of the plan of God from the beginning to the end. And we understand. And that's a magnificent thing. I hope that we can study these things. I suggest again to all of you, get the booklet. Maybe you've read it and forgot it. Go back and read it again. You new people, you young people, please get the booklet. Absolutely free. God's holy days. The holy days, God's master plan, that's the name of it. And really prove these things to yourself and realize this church understands the whole purpose of human existence. No other church does. It's spelled out through his holy days. And let's really focus on that. Pray for the holy days. Prepare for them. Ask God to get you ready. Ask God to bless the holy days here and all over the world. And ask God to draw his people together as never before that we can work with, walk with him and have a greater impact on this world as the true servants of the living God at the end of this age.